All right, I have so much to do today that I was considering breaking this up into two weeks, but I think we can do this in one week. So I might fall back in my super fast talking tendencies, and I apologize already. We are going to go back to 1 John two fifteen through 17 that Peter promised me he was going to do. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm going to do them, and we're going to talk through the love of the world, and I think we can do this in one week, but if I hit halfway and realize we're not going to get this done, then we'll stretch it out. Uh, so buckle up is what I'm saying. Uh, let us read our passage to begin with. Uh, we're going to read two fifteen through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Um. Now, as we've discussed, John has this tendency to repeat himself a lot, right? He, he repeats himself constantly. And we talked about how he takes words and he packs them with meaning and expects you to do all the work when you get to them to unpack them. But he also has words that he uses different ways. And we have to use context to understand what he's talking about. Like we said last week, the quote, uh, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. So we have to understand what John means by the words he uses. And when we read that, do not love the world, we can't help but be reminded by John's, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, I would say. Definitely the most famous verse in John's writing, which is John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And you see a lot of those same themes in this passage, but that do not love the world contrasted with for God so loved the world should make us pause for a second and ask some questions. Uh, And we're going to take most of today, all of today really, to explore two questions. What is love and what is the world? Uh, Because if we don't answer those questions well, we can misinterpret this passage in a variety of ways. Um, So we're going to start with what is love? And I had a great illustration of this on the way here today. Uh, I this is not a, de- a dictionary definition. This is what I, this is, I'm just proposing this to you as a definition of love. Uh, love is the active pursuit of someone's benefit. The active pursuit of someone's benefit. Uh, as a verb, it is always transitive. So remember we talked two or three weeks ago about verbs that either have an object they act on. Um, I kicked versus I kicked the bucket. Um, Love always has an object. We never just say, I love. I love something. I love someone specifically. Uh, And it always has an object, and that object is always personal. Even if I say, I love tacos, and I do. Uh, Even if I say, I love tacos, I can't actively be seeking the benefit of those tacos. In fact, I'm seeking their destruction um, for my own well-being. So I am seeking, actively pursuing someone's benefit. In that case, what I really love is I love myself and how tacos make me feel. Does that make me, does that make sense? Okay. Uh, And that's important to understand because we're going to see this word love used and to figure out who the object really is that, that, um, that John is talking about. And 
So, because when we talk about the meanings of love, you've probably heard of like the different Greek words for love, right? Agape, phileo, eros, you guys have heard those things. And I want to focus less on that because in all of these, uh, all the uses that we're going to talk about, we see this agape verb. That's what we're talking about everywhere is this uh, aka, uh, agape root that, that is, it's pretty interchangeable. You see it both in terms of loving uh, the world, loving neighbor, loving all kinds of things. Uh, but what I want to focus on as a differentiator is outward-directed love versus inward-directed love. Um, probably the most classic passage on love, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 4 through 8 here. You probably heard this at a wedding recently. Um, love is patient. Love is kind or unkind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But I want to focus on that part that's emboldened in your, in your outline there. Uh, it doesn't insist on its own way. So this is the active pursuit of a, of a good that's not my own way. So if I'm truly loving, I am loving outside of myself. I'm loving someone else, and I'm actively pursuing their own way if I'm not fighting for my own way. Um, and then you dial this up to the extreme, John fifteen thirteen, uh, Jesus saying, greater love has no man than this, no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friend. So if you think about the active pursuit of someone's benefit, sacrificially. So what's the most active way I can sacrifice is to lay down my life. That's the most I can give. And what's the best I can benefit you is saving you. So if I lay down my life on your behalf, if I, whether it's um, Christ on the cross specifically exemplifying this to the most, but um, we saw today driving in on veterans and I saw a man running towards me at like Oaklawn and veterans yelling across the street. And I turn and look and there's a woman in a car who's had some kind of accident and the bottom of her car is on fire. Um, and this man is running towards her. To grab because she can't see where the fire is. It's, it's kind of on the on the passenger side of the bottom, so she can't see it, but he can see it. So he's running actively towards her, laying down his own safety for her benefit. He didn't know that woman, but he loved her. You understand that? Um, that is love. It is me making the greatest possible sacrifice for your greatest possible benefit. We contrast that with whenever we see the Bible talking about what I would call inward love. Um, in this passage right here, do not love the world. When we see love and we don't see a person on the other end, we should get suspicious. Uh, loving the world, Demas famously, Demas in love with this present world. Uh, we talk about the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The difference here is that when I love those things, just like those tacos, I am loving them to make me feel better for my own benefit. So that what seems like a non-personal object of love, whether it is money or tacos or cars or whatever the thing is that I, I love that. What I really love is myself and the way that those things make me feel. And that is where we see the, the incurvitas we hear about in sin, the inward direction of sin. I'm pursuing my own way. I'm self-centered instead of loving outward. 
right? So outward love is concerned with the well-being of the object of the love. Inward love is concerned with how it can improve, that object can improve my well-being. And understand object here, when I talk about a person, I'm, I'm using that as a grammatical term, uh, the object of the verb. Um, it's not that the person is an object, obviously. They are the grammatical object of the love. Um, outward love seeks to be made less so that another may be made more. Inward love seeks to increase myself. Uh, and, and obviously it's Mother's Day, and, and in, a, in an ideal world, this is the love of a mother. This is, this is the exemplary love of the mother. Uh, I only get to really see one mom on an active basis. I had, my mom was, was a great mom, uh, but I, when you're a kid, you're not paying attention to these things. Uh, but I get to watch one mom on a daily basis, and, and what I see is the constant sacrificial love in which she constantly lays down her best interests for the, the people around her, the four of us. Um, that's love. She's a loving human being, and she's really, really good at it. And God bless those of you that are and have those moms in your lives. Um, and so in contrasting these two verses that we talked about, John three sixteen and then 1 John two fifteen through 16, let's look at the objects of the love. For God so loved thee, and I'm going to put this in parentheses here because it's not in the, in the text, people in the world that he gave. Um, I can't love a thing so much that I give of myself. At best, I'm trading. I'm trying to get still. Um, God's love for the world is a love for its people. And it drives his sacrificial giving at his own ultimate expense. When we read, do not love the world or the things in the world, and John goes on further to, to uh, put a finer point on what these things are, it's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. These, these things that are about how I feel and how I want and how I crave and how I desire things. It's a love for the self and it uses the ways and the principles and the system of the world to grasp for the things of the world and use them to serve my own pleasure and well-being and benefit. So I hope when we see do not love the world and for God so love the world, we can understand how as much as we are called to imitate Christ as our perfect exemplar, uh, that we would understand how to truly love the world and how not to love the world. And we're going to get into that because now we need to know, does that help? everybody understand what love means now? And specifically what love means in this verse. It's this secondary inward loving. It's the craving. It's the selfish desire. Now, this term world we get to now. Um, there are three possible meanings that we're going to talk about. Uh, and you guys know how much I love to talk about what the author is not saying. Um, it's a quirk I have. I just like to remove any doubt about, I like to avoid the ditches if we can. So this is simple. We just talked about this. The first possible meaning is the people in the world. I think we've made a pretty good case that God is not calling us to not love the people in the world. Um, 
I say in your notes, it's plain. <laughs> it is obvious that it is not against loving the people in the world because this is exactly what God has done, right? We, <laughs> let's, let's even put a finer point on it. We are the people in the world that God came to love. Uh, so if loving sinful, corrupt humanity was a sin, God would be a sinner. Does that make sense? God gave himself to love us when we were in the world. We are called to emulate God imperfectly as we may to love a world full of people dead in their sins. We are surrounded by people dead in their sins and we are surrounded by people that need to know the love of Jesus. And we love them best as we help them see the love of Jesus. Um, so that is very clearly, John is not saying, do not love the people in the world. But I want to get to the next one, which is a little bit fuzzier here, uh, which is the physical creation. Um, is John admonishing us against loving physical things in the world? Now, one reason you might think that he's saying this is the wording in your Bible that says, do not love the world or, and it feels like even more specific here, or the things in the world. That seems really open and shut case, right? Do not love the things in the world. So I can't love the things in the world. This is where looking at, at the original language does help for a minute. That word things in your Bible, in your English translation, and I could not find an English translation that didn't have something in there. It just doesn't exist in the Greek. It is just a do not love the in the world. Do not love the world or the in the world is what the, the Greek literally translates to. Or that which is in the world. Uh, and that helps us. I think that doesn't mean there's error in scripture. It means that your translator did the best they could to communicate the idea of what was in the original text. Um, and I think it's okay because we get into a further description of what those things are in the very next verse. Um, another bit of evidence, though, that you can, we can say that this isn't about the physical things in the world is because John immediately afterwards says, the things of the world are not from the Father. Who can name for me one thing in this world that was not created, the physical world that was not created by God? So if God created the physical things in the world, then we can know fairly well that the stuff that John is talking about that was not from the Father is clearly not the physical things because God made those, okay? He didn't just make them. He made them and said they were very good. He said, good, 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 very good. So... So we know that God made the physical world good. I love this from, uh, this is an old, this is like a hundred year old uh, commentary by a theologian named Robert Law. This quote here, uh, the creator himself is the original and perfect artist. The eye and all that it desires and delights in are his thought and handiwork. We cannot behold the beauty with which he has dowered all his works from the tiniest crystal to the constellations without believing that in all this, we see the passing gleams of an ideal beauty, which as truly belongs to the divine nature itself as wisdom or power. He 
saying God is as beautiful as he is wise and as he is powerful. In our, in our own nature, made in his likeness, the sense of beauty seems to be a fact as ultimate as the sense of truth or of right and wrong. It is of God and for God. The fact that you were made with the ability to sense things, that you can taste things, that you can see beauty, that you can feel a back scratch, that you can smell cinnamon rolls baking in the oven. That's a testament that God made you that way for a purpose. Um, He made us in a world that could have been a robot world with no sensation, but he made a beautiful world and he made a delightful world and he made us to enjoy those delights. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. They are made to point us to him. I love this thought. So this is a book. uh, You guys know the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And the line, and the things of of the world will grow, or things of earth will grow strangely dim. So this author, Joe Rigney, has put a spin on this book. And it's a book titled Strangely Bright. And I love the idea here that the things of the world also grow strangely bright in the light of God's glory and grace. Um, and he has a great explanation here of why the world is beautiful. He says, tucked away in the book of Proverbs, Solomon gives us a window into one of the main purposes for the things of earth. My son, eat honey for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Why did God make honey so tasty and sweet? So that we would have some idea of what wisdom is like. At least that's one reason. The sweetness of honey points beyond itself to the wisdom of God. Honey is good, and we are exhorted in Psalm 34 to taste and see that the Lord is good. Our souls have taste buds, just like our tongues. And we can train the soul buds by exercising the tongue buds. When we savor the sweetness of honey or sweet tea, I think he's a southerner, or pumpkin crunch cake, we, enjoy, we engage in a fancy bit of reading. We transpose the physical enjoyment of taste onto our souls and offer thanks to God, not only for the simple pleasures of food, but also for the spiritual pleasures to which the food is but a fitting echo. But... This means we can't short-circuit the enjoyment of honey. In order for us to gain the full spiritual benefit of honey, we must really enjoy its sweetness. There must be a savoring of honey. As honey before, there can ever... Sorry, there must be a savoring of honey as honey before there can ever be a savoring of honey as a pointer to divine wisdom. In short, if we're to obey the biblical exhortation to know that wisdom is such to your soul, we first must know such. That is, we must first eat honey. You, God plants pointers in this world for you to see him and enjoy him, but you have to engage with those things first. And if we remember that John was writing to an audience here that had this like early Gnosticism that was tempted to say that the physical world was evil, 
and the spiritual world was good. John, if he's, if he's really worried about this, won't talk about the world being good at all. He, he, the last thing he wants to do is give ammunition to folks saying that the world is evil, that, that the physical world is bad. He, he's not trying to do that. He's getting behind it, actually almost flipping on his head, saying, no, there are spiritual things that are way worse than anything in this world. That's where John's going here. Now, this is food. He's talking about honey, but we see it in other places. Um, we see the beauty of nature, right? God saw the world, made the world and saw that it was very good. Um, the arts, right? So Exodus 15, they get across the, um, the Red Sea and then the song breaks out. The whole book of Psalms. Uh, the book of Job, by the way, uh, has difficult things in it, but there are a lot of scholars who think that that was actually written to be dramatized. It was written to be performed. There's, the arts are good. Uh, good literature, good writing, good music, the paintings, sculptures, those are good things. Human beauty, intimacy and in marriage, these are good things that God made to be enjoyed. Um, and by the way, not just physical things, culture too. I, I love the use of honey and the use of bread because both of those are things that God, yes, God made them, but God's creatures made them. Who makes honey? Bees. God didn't just make honey. He made bees. Bees make honey. God doesn't make bread. If you'll take that, if you understand my meaning here, God makes people. God makes grain. People make bread, right? So the handiwork of God's creation is also an extrapolation of its goodness. So then we get to the third possible meaning. And it's the most nebulous meaning, and I probably use about five different words for it in your notes. Um, because it, it is nebulous. It's, it is a mindset. It is a system. It is a worldview. It is a spirit of the world that John is getting at here. John is talking about a system of the world that seeks to feed its own desires and to steal and kill to get it. Uh, and John outlines these in the next verse with three desires. I want to review these. We're going to hit them quickly. And I'm going to ask some questions, and they might be hard questions. And there are probably, I'm going to hit some of you with some of these questions and myself. I personally aimed some of these at myself, uh, but I might also miss you. So I want you to extrapolate these questions to where you feel like if you're playing Battleship and one of these lands close, follow it closer, okay? Uh, don't be like, ooh, he missed me on that one. Um, listen to the Holy Spirit. He knows exactly where your cruiser is. Um, we start with the desires of the flesh, uh, and this is the satisfaction of the body's desires in a way that elevates them to an ultimate position in our lives, uh, and specifically a position that's all elevated above the love of God or neighbor. Like I said, God made us with senses. He made it so a back scratch feels good. He made it so that food is comforting. Um, but when we elevate these things above the love of God and love of neighbor, we rise to a level of idolatry and self-service that becomes part of the system of the world. So all those good things I talked about, it's wise to ask ourselves, uh, am I indulging myself to excess in any areas? Um, food, alcohol, sloth, 
media, if I consume and consume and consume and consume without producing. Um, and this might, you know, different people, you're going to, this is going to look different for different people. When in my first couple years of marriage, I got kind of chubby, honestly. You wouldn't have looked at me like, man, that guy is, is morbidly obese or anything. But I loved food more than I loved the people around me. And I ate in a way that wasn't caring for the people around me and did not steward the body that God gave me well. And it was, it was not a good season for me. Um, so just because you know, your BMI is just under the obese level doesn't mean that you may not have a problem with gluttony because it's less about how many calories a day you eat and more about the attitude of the heart with which you approach your food. Right? It's not about how many hours a day you sleep. It's about uh, whether you safeguard that in a way that snaps at others when, when, you're, when your ease is interrupted. Um, it's also, do I regularly use any of these things as a means of comfort or escape? Um, not that it's never good to have a brownie because you've had a hard day. But if I'm constantly looking to food to soothe uh, or to alcohol to take the edge off, um, it's time to inspect whether my relationship with that is, is risen to idolatry. Am I indulging myself sexually in any way outside of the biblical confines of marriage? Or, and I, I'm directing this more to guys, but this can be anywhere. Is my behavior in this area of my marriage marked by demanding my own way? and my own gratification or by self-sacrificial deference. When I take any good, pleasurable thing that God has given me and make it my end and my goal and make it the ultimate, that's where idolatry happens. That's Romans 1. It's, it's substituting the created above the creator and above the neighbor. Because as we love God, we love neighbor. The first commandment, you know, when Jesus says the second is just like it. Because man is made in God's image. And when I elevate myself over man, I elevate myself over God. The desires of the eyes. This occurs when we become consumed with the appearance of ourselves and the things around us. Both physical things as well as intellectual things. But we divorce them from the appreciation of the God who gave them and elevate them also above God and neighbor in our appreciation and pursuit of of them. So this is a continuation of that same quote that Robert Law was talking about this passage when talking about all the beautiful things that God has made. Now God has made a beautiful world and made us as creatures that sense beauty. There's a but here. And I love the phrase, his description of this is great. But if the light of God be shut out from the desire for and the delight in beauty, whether physical or intellectual, it becomes merely the lust of the eyes. The love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness. If we are loving things for beauty's sake, but sacrificing goodness in their pursuit, we are, we are dabbling in the desires of the eyes. Ask yourself, what does my social media presence look like? For those of you that don't have social media, God bless you. Um, he already has. Um, would an outside analysis of it be viewed as being consumed with myself and my appearance? And again, this may not be my physical appearance. It may be how smart I want to look. 
Uh, do my choices of what to look at and who to follow feed my covetousness? Covetousness is tied in really closely with, with this part. When I have guests, am I more concerned with how my home looks and how good my cooking is or how welcomed I make my guests feel and whether they leave feeling edified? Are my mean choices of entertainment meant simply to delight myself? Or are they means for me to better love God and understand his world? What are you consuming? What are you taking in? We become what we behold. Um, are the desires of your eyes, the, the sinful desires of the eyes, overriding your, your, whole, your, your holy desire, uh, delight in God's good creation? Uh, lastly, John says the pride of life. This is the love of self exemplified in a projection of superiority above those around oneself, particularly with regard to one's possessions, power, importance, and other self-perceived qualities. Do I dominate conversations with talk about myself? Done. Like, just done. Um, do I make myself the center of attention in interacting with others? Am I more concerned with being impressive, funny? I'm staring at a friend of mine who made me think these things in a good way. Uh, impressive, funny, or in any other way admirable than I am with loving my neighbor. I'm going to footnote Bob Hartman here because Bob uh, put this selfishness in conversation so eloquently in our last men's meeting. The love of humor above the love of neighbor. Um, like I said, done. I, yeah. Do my interactions with others in person or online communicate a lack of humility or an indication that I may be willing to have my opinion changed on a topic? Do I care more about being befriended by the people I deem important than I do about befriending those that are marginalized? Do I wallow in self-pity as a means of currying sympathy from others? Pride of life can sometimes look like self-humiliation because I feel like I'm not getting the attention I deserve and so I'm going to try to get it by playing low and using some verbal uh, judo to get you to come towards me. There's a lot to chew on there. Uh, I'm sorry for asking so many hard questions, but I'm not. Um, like I said, a lot of those were aimed at me. Um, these temptations should set off a little bit of a, a smell to you. Like, I feel like I've heard this before. I feel like I know this somewhere. And you probably know it more obviously in one place and maybe you notice it less obviously in another. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes the pride of life when she saw those things what did she do she took of the fruit and she ate it she indulged those desires she loved the world more than the god that gave the world and that's how we got here. But there's good news. 
in the temptation stories of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew and Luke. Satan tempts Christ to indulge the lust of the flesh. Command this stone to become bread. And the lust of the eyes. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And the pride of life. He'll command his angels. And they'll bear you up. You'll be powerful. You can command. You can feel great about the control you have over these angelic beings. And Christ overcame those temptations. He walked in perfect righteousness where our first parents didn't. And that would be a fun storyline and nothing more if we weren't abiding in Christ. But just as we were implicated in our first parents' failure to resist temptation, we have found vindication in our elder brother's representative conquering of sin on our behalf. We are in Christ. And in his conquering of sin, we have conquered sin. As we abide in him, we do have and can continue to experience victory over these temptations. We have, con- we have positionally defeated them and we can walk with that abiding Christ in us in a progressive growth in our victory over them in our lives. Remember, Christianity, your walk is a now but not yet. I am now justified, but I am not yet sanctified and not yet glorified. I'm partially sanctified, not yet glorified. And I'm a work in progress. You are a work in progress. And that progress is secured by the work of Christ in overcoming sin and overcoming death. And it is empowered by the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in you to give you the power to say no to the desires of the world. That is good news, friends, because otherwise we are sunk. Okay? That's why John says, I mean, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James says it this way. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You're not going to do this perfectly. That's the caveat. But do not use the, well, nobody's perfect yet excuse to excuse yourself from the duty of mortifying flesh on a daily basis. Like I said, we as good Calvinists love to say the work is done and no more works are required. But you got to remember Ephesians 2.8, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Why? So that we can walk in good works that the Father's prepared for us. We don't get out of the works thing because God has saved us. We get into the works thing because God has saved us. We get to do the good works. We've got to stop viewing sin as this thing that we don't get to do anymore. Oh, I'm a Christian. I don't get to do that. You don't have to do that. You don't have to sin. You don't have to have your life marred by the the destruction of sin. In your life. You don't have to be there. The wages of sin is death, people. 
later and now. And that's why John writes, the Holy Spirit says through John, the world is passing away along with its desires. The wages of sin is death. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Where else do you hear this contrast between perishing and abiding forever? Where else did we hear that? John 3.16, right where we started, right? Whoever believes in him, whoever does the will of the Father by believing in the saving work of Christ, whoever does that doesn't have to perish with the world, but gets to abide in and with Christ forever. (laughs) Christ did not come to prohibit you from sinning, but to save you from it, to save you from the power of sin, to save you from the consequences of sin. And I feel like only recently, in the last few years, have I really grasped that, and maybe I'm just a late bloomer here, that sin is destructive now. That I, I don't walk through my life trying not to sin so I won't make God mad. I walk through life trying not to sin in the power of the Holy Spirit because I know that by walking in the ways that God has set before me that I can love him, that I can love my neighbor, that I can love my wife, that I can love my kids And that it's good. God didn't make rules for our destruction. God told us how the world works best for his glory and for our good. And as we walk in obedience, we walk in the flourishing of that joy. And sometimes it's hard. But we get to delight in the long run in the pleasure of abiding with Christ in the ways he has set before us. Christ in us empowers this obedience. And in the moments where we fail, he's that bigger Russian nesting doll that surrounds us. And we abide in him with confidence before God to come for grace and mercy. So you're empowered to do this And you're covered when you screw it up. And I want us to walk forth from this passage and all those hard questions I asked you that made you feel super uncomfortable, hopefully. Um, Knowing that those questions are asked because God wants his glory and your good. Amen, folks. Thank y'all.